You're listening to a podcast from St. Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, as we continue in our series in 1 John, it'd be really helpful to have your Bibles open and your Bible app open. It. So 1 John chapter 2, we're picking up at verse 28 and then going through to that which we just heard read, so chapter 3, verse 10. There's also an outline on the back of the news. So there's translation points there in English, Korean, Simplified Chinese, and also Dinka, if that's of help to you. But let's, let's pray and ask for the ultimate help. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy to us. We especially thank you for your word. And we ask now, Lord, please, would you be at work in the power of your spirit, driving your word into our hearts, our minds, our wills, particularly that it would yield the fruit of obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, quite some years ago now, in fact, over a decade ago now, Patrice, uh, Patrice is my wife, Patrice was pregnant with our very first child, Amelia, and I remember one appointment with the obstetrician in particular. It was getting really close to the due date, and having just done a scan, the obstetrician made the comment, the obstetrician observed that the baby had rotated, uh, signalling that it now wouldn't be long. Whenever we went to these appointments, Patrice always came with a pre-prepared, very helpful, long list of questions. I was a bit more free than that. I'd come with asking sort of all the curious questions on the side. And so when he made this observation, I said, wow. I said, you know, what is happening biologically that triggers that the bodies know that this is about to happen? And when I asked this question, he just smiled and he marvelled, saying, it is a miracle. In fact, there are so many things that we don't just understand. I was really astounded. I was amazed that despite him having delivered who knows how many babies over many decades working in the area, despite something being so common, actually, to all of humanity, he hadn't lost a sense of awe and wonder at new life and impending birth. John doesn't want us to lose the wonder that every Christian has been born again. We're new. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you have been born of God. The community to whom John writes, remember, are under all sorts of pressure. There's a breakaway group who are peddling bizarre ideas that could really lead faithful believers astray. This breakaway group are wrong when it comes to Jesus. They deny that he is the Christ. They also deny Jesus' humanity. The breakaway group are also wrong when it comes to sin. For it seems that they think that sin does not matter, that sin is of no consequence, or even that they are without sin. It's dangerous. It's dangerous because it runs the risk of tearing believers away from Jesus. That's why what John wants, it seems, more than anything, is for the community to whom he writes to keep remaining in Jesus. That's where we landed at the end of last week. To keep remaining in Jesus, to continue in Jesus, 
to keep clinging to Jesus. Verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that, because, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So note John says, we, so this is advice for him as much as anyone else. John wants them and us to be confident and unashamed on the day when Jesus returns. John's saying, look, you know that Jesus is returning one day. We will meet him. We don't know when, but it is certain. And the only thing, the only thing that will give you a rock-solid confidence to meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords with joy, rather than fleeing and shrinking in shame in the face of judgment, is not your share portfolio or your impressive achievements or your moral prowess, but by clinging to the one who died and was raised for you. The reason why you've got to keep remaining in him, the reason why you've got to keep continuing in him, is because he alone is the basis for real confidence and the absence of shame. We're, of course, going to be reminded of that today as Tritiv is baptised. That's what this pool is for, in case you were wondering. As Tritiv is baptised and publicly declares his trust in Jesus. We're going to be reminded ever so visually, and Tritiv and I are going to be reminded ever so physically. (laughs) But as he plunges into that water and is lifted up out of it, that's what we're meant to see. That the reason that Tritiv and all who trust in Jesus can have confidence today and on that day when Jesus returns is because he, along with all who trust in Jesus, have been washed clean through Jesus' death. It's because he, along with all who trust in Jesus, are bundled up in Jesus' resurrection. And so with that confidence, John continues that as people who are born of him, one of the ways that we can show that to the world, one of the fruit of belonging to God, one of the ways that we can cultivate our lives to remain in him, is through obedience to Jesus. We see that in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. As followers of Jesus, our lives should mirror him. Uh, John gives us three reasons to cultivate lives of obedience that are really directly related to who we are, whole new people, in Jesus. So we cultivate obedience because we have a new identity, we're adopted as God's children, we have a new status, our sins have been taken away, and we have a new allegiance, evil has been overthrown. So first, we cultivate obedience because we have a new identity. We are adopted as God's children. So let's have a look. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. So the very first basis for us to live in obedience to God as children of God is to wonder and delight in the extraordinary love that God has lavished on us. You are loved lavishly by God. 
So John is really expressing this with a really genuine, intense joy and astonishment. He's saying, this is remarkable. You, you really need to get excited about this. Not only is it extraordinary that God loves us, but it's actually like God's love is from somewhere altogether different. It's out of this world. This is a, a love like nothing we've ever seen before. I remember a few years ago now, the first time I ever introduced a colleague of mine to what really good coffee should taste like. Uh, we were overseas uh, working, and he consistently drank uh, very bitter coffee that was loaded up with so much sugar, so five or six teaspoons of sugar, just to make it palatable, just to make it consumable. I finally had enough, and I said, look, come on, we're going to go to another cafe. I took him to a good place, said, you've got to try this. And I still remember that as he took the sip and he tasted this coffee, he exclaimed, I never knew coffee could taste so good. You know, God loves you with a love like nothing else, like nothing we've tasted before. Our human experience of loving and being loved will always fall short in some way, but not with God. When you trust in Jesus, you're adopted as his child. Did you note that we're not just called children of God, but we are children of God? That's what you can know as you trust in Jesus. John even repeats himself just to make it really abundantly clear, verse 2. Having said that, he says, now we are children of God. John really wants us to know and to delight in that. John wants you really to know and to delight in that. But it doesn't stop there. So note that there's both a a present and also a future dimension to that. Verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we do know, we know that when Christ appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We are now children of God, but there's also a a future aspect to what we will become and are becoming. John says part of that future is unknown, for we we don't know exactly what it will be like. You know, we don't know every single detail of what it will be like, but that doesn't mean that we know nothing. Just look at what we do know. In verse 2, Christ will appear, we will see him, and we shall be like him. Uh, You know, people have all sorts of questions of what will it be like when Jesus appears? What will new creation really be like? And of course, we don't have the answer to every single question. But we should just take a moment, if more than a moment, to take and delight in what we do know. Jesus will appear... We will see him and we shall be like him. When it says we shall be like him, it doesn't mean that we won't be ourselves. We'll still be human. We'll still be in a physical new creation. But we'll be like Jesus in that we'll no longer be marred by sin. We'll no longer be subject to death. Therefore, what does that mean? Verse 3. All who have this hope, that is yet to come, in him purify themselves just as he is pure. It really is such a a beautiful vision. Uh, You know, love or being in love can 
animate us to do all sorts of things, some of those wise and some of those unwise, but, but this is really amazing. That, that having catched a glimpse and experienced a taste of God's lovish love, the, the force is that that would drive us into living lives of obedience so that we look more and more like Jesus. And really, that's only the, res- the only response that makes sense. Now, of course, John doesn't mean that we're going to perfect that. That's really obvious. John doesn't mean that we're responsible for our own purification. He's actually already dealt with that comprehensively earlier in the letter. He said that it's in Jesus' death on the cross, it's through Jesus' blood that we're purified. But here John is saying, building on that, recognising that we're now children of God, that we have the security of God's love and anticipation of that which is yet to come, he's saying the only thing that makes sense now in between those time frames is to live obediently in light of the future which awaits us. That we should resist temptation. That we should put sin to death. Remember, there were people at the time who were saying sin doesn't matter. Of course sin matters. Sinning makes no sense in light of our present and future reality. It would be a bit like uh, getting engaged to be married in the near future, but then both people just keep carrying on dating other people. (laughs) It would make no sense. If your destiny, so to speak, was uh, marriage, then you ought to stop dating other people. If destiny, our destiny is glorification in Christ-likeness, then we ought to stop sinning. So often people come up to me, uh, especially people who I haven't met before, and they might say, it's all really nice to meet you. And they said, I think I have already met your son. <laughs> they haven't seen us side by side, but they have seen him earlier and they've said, your likeness is sufficient enough that we know that you are related. But how much more as God's children awaiting that final transformation, we seek to purify ourselves now just as he, that is Jesus, is pure. That, of course, is part of how the Spirit is at work in us, even now transforming us in Jesus' likeness. When we sin, we're not just falling short of God's commands, but we're actually at odds with him. It's incongruent with who we are in him. We're at odds, rejecting the work of the Spirit at work in us right now. We're at odds, contradicting the final work of Christ, transforming us when he returns. We're at odds with our new identity as children of God living in his likeness. Second, we cultivate obedience because we have a new status. Our sins have been taken away. So let's have a look from verse 4 of chapter 3. Everyone who breaks... Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has ever seen him or known him. So as we hear these verses, they can sound a bit tricky at first. There are at least two faulty ways, okay, to understand these verses. Uh, The first of the faulty one says, well, if Jesus has taken away our sin then it's impossible for Christians to sin. Now, I think we could put that to the test right now. I won't actually ask people to do this, but if I said, you know, everyone who has you know, committed any sin in recent history, so let's say the last 20 minutes or 
Maybe we've been more generous the last 24 hours, okay? If anyone has committed any sin in the last 24 hours, would you please put your hand up? Now, don't do that, okay? You don't have to do it. But if I said that, everyone would have their hand up. And if someone didn't have their hand up because they think that they hadn't, well, I'd have to say, that's probably the sin of spiritual blindness. There was actually a pastor in Brisbane not that many years ago who wrote a book that got quite a bit of momentum and caused all sorts of trouble, suggesting that it should be the mission of every Christian through striving and prayer to attain sinless perfection. To attain sinless perfection by their own efforts, by their own moral prowess. But that just isn't possible. Now, John is really realistic about that. He's already said back in chapter 1 that anyone who claims to be without sin, do you remember? A claim likely of those who had broken away, John says, well, they are liars. They're deluded. They're under the influence of the enemy. So it can't possibly mean that sin is impossible for Christians. The second faulty way to interpret this is not that Christians can't sin, but that those who do well, they're not true Christians at all. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. It would be a faulty way to interpret that to say that our sin invalidates our trust in Jesus. John's already accounted for that, so also back in chapter 1, because, of course, he said that when we do sin and when we go to God in confession, trusting in what Jesus has done, then we're assured of forgiveness. We ought not to think that we're without sin and we ought also not to doubt our salvation when we do. So what John is talking about here is is like a more fundamental approach, a a faulty approach in Christians to sin, perhaps even denying that that sin exists or or denying that sin is bad. Uh, John wants us to see just how ugly the problem of sin is. He said it's lawlessness, it's it's raging against God's purposes and authority. And therefore it is not befitting of those who belong to him. When we choose, and this may be what John is actually implying here, to, to persistently and consistently and habitually to enter into sin, then there is actually a part of us that's railing against the very purposes of Jesus which is to take sin away. Remember the sort of people that John was concerned about at the time. He was concerned with the likes of those breakaway groups, some of whom it seems were saying they're without sin. Others who were claiming that actually sin doesn't matter. The issue really at stake is, is not the reality that Christians might and do sin, that should be obvious, but that there is a dangerous predicament that we can drift into when we think that that doesn't matter. The type of scenario in which we keep turning a blind eye to sin or where sin goes unacknowledged or unconfessed. It has the the danger of not only festering into blatant disregard for what God wants, but actually, over time, can grow into a blatant disregard for God himself. Yet the opposite extraordinarily, is that God can use even our small acts of obedience in extraordinary ways. 
So that means that we should long to be obedient. That means we should be really honest in confession because Jesus has taken away our sins. He's paid the price and one day our sin will be completely put away. Um, it's a bit like when we become a Christian, when we first become a Christian, that all of a sudden we've got a whole new song to play. It becomes the whole song of our life. We, we go from singing the tune of our heart or the tune of the world to the tune of the Lord. We start playing from God's song sheet. But when we sin and we want to keep going back to those ways perpetually, it's like we're starting to play someone else's song sheet instead of God's. Of course, we're not going to play every note perfectly, but we want our lives to be the song of the Lord. As God's forgiven children, we're free to live for him. Third, we cultivate obedience because we have a new allegiance, for evil has been overthrown. So let's have a look from verse 7. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. So John is showing us that when we choose to sin or not to sin, there's actually a choice going on between two kingdoms. The kingdom of, of evil which has been defeated and will not last, and the kingdom of God, which is victorious and is forever. The origin of sin is of the devil. The origin of righteousness is God. The one who does what is sinful is mirroring the enemy. The one who does what is right is mirroring God. The work of the evil one has been defeated. The work of Jesus has been victorious. That's the contrast John showing us. And of course, we could continue. The future of evil is destruction, but the future of God's kingdom is forever. To which do we want to be aligned? With sin, which aligns us with an overthrown enemy, or with obedience that aligns us with a victorious king? Now, it's not that these things save us, but they point to the one by whom we are saved. Uh, John's likely mindful of those, as I said before, who think that sin isn't real or it doesn't matter, and he's painting this cosmic picture. There are definitely those who sin with no regard to God, with no acknowledgement of sin, saying that's a, a perilous scenario that leads to destruction. But he's also saying, if you have been born of God, when we make that choice, as small as it might be, to sin or not to sin, we are actually making a choice between two natures in us. We are either giving oxygen to our sinful nature, which has no future, or our new nature in Christ, that which is made to last. Now, I don't know about you, but how this is hard. In fact, it might even feel a little overwhelming. But we're not meant to be feel overwhelmed. I mean, we are so thankful that we can run to God for forgiveness. We're so thankful that our salvation is not dependent 
on our obedience. I love how John Newton put it. He said, I am not what I ought to be. There's a great sorrow in that. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Look what John reminds us. We don't do this on our own. We do it on God's strength with the hope that is certain. So John says the new nature, so God's nature, he said it's like a seed that's planted in you. Uh, When John says seed here, he's likely specifically talking about God's nature. Uh, God's nature has been planted in us. God's strength and God's life is in us. That's a really encouraging image. A seed might seem really small, but just think about if you've ever seen a, a footpath, a pavement that has a crack, and a seed goes down into that crack, well, it doesn't take long before the seed sprouts and it can overcome even the enormous weight of that concrete, of, of that pavement. You know, our sin can feel so heavy. It might seem immovable. In our own strength, it is but we don't do it in our own strength. We live in the power of God's Spirit. The Spirit who helps us to see sin in our lives, the Spirit who helps us to resist temptation, and the Spirit who helps us be transformed in His likeness. Sin should not cause us to doubt our salvation, but how our salvation in the power of God's Spirit should drive us to throw off sin. For we are children of God. Jesus has taken away our sins and evil has been overthrown. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much that by your extraordinary love, love lavished on us that we see so clearly on the cross, that it's by your love and grace that we are saved. Lord, please help us to come to you, to delight in you, Lord, we pray that so animated, so delighted, so thankful for your love which has been poured out, that we would seek to mirror you and your likeness with our entire lives. Lord, how we are so sorry for when we fall short. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in the power of your spirit, convicting us of sin and helping us to be transformed day by day. Lord, how we thank you that on that day when Jesus returns, that when we meet Jesus, that we can be confident and unashamed, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done and what he will make us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a podcast from St Bart's. To learn more or to take the next step, visit stbarts.com.au.